produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. And then there's one gaping sinkhole on that list at number 20, and it's me. (laughs) You probably recognize that voice. That's the greatest talk show host of my generation, David Letterman. Not that he'd tell you that. The list that he's supposedly a sinkhole on? Recipients of the coveted Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. It's given out each year by the Kennedy Center, and it's easily the most prestigious award a comedian can get. With his twain, Letterman joined the company of Richard Pryor, Carol Burnett, Neil Simon, Eddie Murphy, and Tina Fey, which is why in typically self-deprecating style, he refuses to revel in his own success. This award, and me getting it, it ought to be the Babe Ruth Award. (laughs) Really, Dave, how many home runs did you hit? (laughs) You know, it just just seems like... uh, I'm in the wrong parking lot. Thanks for mentioning the parking lot, Dave. We're standing in one in Hartford, Connecticut. Letterman asked me to meet him at the Mark Twain house. He wants to pay homage to the master and brush up on his Samuel Clemens. This is not a requirement for Twain winners. In fact, yes, are you with me Yes, how many of the 20 have visited this house? I found out this morning. Um, Two. You were the first. Yes! <laughs> Screw those other people! Letterman is retired now, at least from network TV. But he's back on television with a Netflix talk show, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. The title is spot on. The first guest, President Obama. On this day, Letterman and I have different missions. He's doing an interview to publicize the Mark Twain Prize. I'm here because I want to understand why he left the late night dial when he's needed more than ever. How did the man who seemed almost sickly driven, whose every shred of being appeared focused on putting on a television show, learn that there was more to life than the top 10 list? Like a family. And this isn't some act. Spend any time with Letterman and you'll realize that his marriage and his now 14-year-old boy, Harry, are at the center of everything. Don't worry, we'll get to all of that. But first, just for the memories, Let's let Dave get one more hack at himself. I, 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 uh, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. Let's get a sheet of paper, and, and we can put together a hundred names of people more deserving of this recognition than myself. Mm-hmm. Right now, we can do it. You know, what, what about people that are actually funny? Jerry Seinfeld, much funnier than I. Kevin Hart may be the funniest man in the world today. Are they giving him the, the uh, maybe next year? At some point. Yeah. Uh, so I'm pretty... Uh, Did uh, you even uh, think about not accepting it or no? Uh, no. <laughs> he accepted it, but not exactly with bells on. Boy, it's... Um, uh, tell me, is it wrong that I kind of wish this could have been presented posthumously? I'm Washington Post National Arts reporter Jeff Edgers, and from the Post and WBUR in Boston, this is Edge of Fame, a podcast about the life that happens before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Today, the last king of late-night TV, David Letterman, 
whose biggest regret may surprise you. Here's a hint. It has nothing to do with his notorious TV feud with Jay Leno. So Dave's crazy white ZZ top beard. I want to get this out of the way before we get much further. It's been called a victory beard, a revenge beard, a retirement beard. Maybe we've been thinking about it too much. But there is no question that David Letterman's beard, a work in progress since his late show retirement three years ago, certainly cuts against the image of the clean-shaven host in a tailored suit, an image instilled over 30 years on TV. The beard has even left Howard Stern grasping for straws. You haven't heard from David Letterman uh, since his retirement. That's true. What's going on with the beard? Is that Dave saying... uh... What is Dave saying with that beard? Is he checking out of society? Has he gone underground? I mean, there are questions, so I asked... Has he joined a religious cult? Maybe it's a religious thing. Well, that's true. <laughs> so I said to Dave... No, Dave has not joined the Oak Ridge Boys or a Lubavitch sect. Here's Barbara Gaines, a friend and Letterman's longtime executive producer. He has a beard now, so when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see, you know, the old talk show Dave. This is a new person. I think he said that himself. And he really is a different Dave. Well, when I left the show, first of all, I wanted to see how it felt when I left. Because it had been 30 years. Uh, so I, I wanted to find out whether I, there was something that I needed to do, first of all. And in the beginning, it, it's a pretty short trip to abject panic. Letterman's dry humor hasn't changed, but his outlook on television sure has. He actually compared his career to a prison sentence. Being in prison for 20 years, the emotional commitment there is survival. To doing a late-night talk show in the supposed war zone of late-night talk shows, also an emotional commitment. Now, having been released from prison, thankfully, and also now no longer in late-night television, I could care less. Like a newly released felon, it wasn't easy adjusting to life on the outside. The first thing I noticed was, I, I'm having trouble, uh, I, I, I keep getting lost. I can't, I can't, I don't know how stores work anymore. I, I, I went into this uh, shoe warehouse. Yeah. That's Mary Barclay, one of Letterman's longtime assistants. You know the, the shoe I know warehouse? DSW, yeah. yeah. I'd never been in one. Uh, and it was, it was hard, I, they have no, nobody works in there. The customers help each other. And I, when I was a kid, you go to a place and a guy had a thing and you put it down and you put your foot on the deal and they'd measure it. But in, in this DSW, it's, it's uh, I, I guess it's the greatest sense, greatest manifestation of humanity at its finest. Because it literally is customers helping <laughs> customers find shoes. This is the new Dave. The Dave who has to think about how Americans acquire footwear. For the last 30 years, the old Dave really only had one concern, doing a nightly television program. Nothing was more important than TV. Nothing. His standards were high. Letterman was never one to toss around compliments. Praise from him was like a super Yankee dollar. Here's Steve O'Donnell, one of his longtime former writers. Because he wasn't effusive. That was another weird thing about after you'd worked for Letterman for a decade, coming to California where people massaged your shoulders when you were in the edit room and you were going, what's going on here? You know, and people were like, you're a genius, you're a genius. No, you're a bigger genius. At Letterman, it was not like that. And what you'd be, you'd be busting your buttons if, if Dave would say something like, oh, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. 
That wasn't just Dave's management style. It was his sense of humor, too. If you analyze it, you can trace Dave's style to a series of sources. Some he's conscious of, some were clearly soaked up while growing up. Any late-night watcher remembers Dave's mom, Dorothy, the soft-spoken homemaker who he put to work covering the Olympics and sharing her homemade pies. But long before he got his show, Letterman also learned from his father, Harry. His dad ran a flower shop in Indianapolis, and dad loved comedy, too. It was during our second interview, a few weeks after we met up at the Twain House, that Dave was ready to talk about family. My first recollection of official professional comedy was we would go to my grandmother's for the weekend and drive home on a Sunday night and listen to Jack Benny on the radio. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. And that was uh, my first introduction to professionally produced broadcast comedy. Uh, and the, the more you get to know about Jack Benny, the more you understood why, you know, my dad loved him, my mother loved him, everybody loved Jack Benny. Ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, a little over a month ago, Jack Benny made his first and only appearance in television. Last week, the radio and TV editors of the United States conducted a poll. And who do you think was selected as the most outstanding personality in television? Don. And which comedian was picked as having television's funniest program? Don. And who do you think was chosen as television's most popular? Don, Don, we, we can't do this introduction. Why not? We wrote it too soon. They picked Milton Berle. <laughs> That was my, my first official uh, realization that my dad had a, a taste for comedy. And then he would always, always find a way to perform. He would, any church function that he had to officiate, he, he would throw in jokes, he would have props, and he would, he would try to you know, turn something dull into something silly. Um, and toward the end of his life, when he, uh, he had been an alcoholic, still... Notice that Dave just slips that in, Harry's struggle with alcoholism. Letterman also drank too much, though he quit in the early 80s. Anyway, the point of that reference is how his dad, after he stopped drinking, had his son come to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with him. This would be in the early 1970s. He invited me to an AA meeting once, and he had taken over. He had become the president of the local chapter. He was running the show. He was telling jokes. He, he had an audience, a guaranteed audience, every, whenever they met, Tuesday morning or whatever, in, in some church basement. And he was like that with everything. Let's talk about a couple of other Letterman influences. He doesn't hold back his great admiration for comedian and one-time Tonight Show host Steve Allen. He loved Allen's ability to take his cameras out onto the street, to make the most seemingly mundane places into something really funny. They would take the cameras, they would run across the street, and they would go into a, 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 a supermarket in the farmer's market, and they, they would, you know, uh, they'd start throwing uh, oranges at each other. You know, he and a guest, he and a couple of guests. And, oh, my God, I just, I, you'd never seen anything like that. That was, that was groundbreaking. It's so um, foreign, alien to what, Heretofore, you've been led to believe one might see on TV. So Steve Allen was a major influence. But let's also remember this natural thing inside, what I consider Dave's comic sensibility. It's just part of his inner being. Take this story from a childhood friend, Steve Brown. He remembers sitting around one day after school with Letterman. They were just 13. 
Letterman saw a listing in the want ads of the local newspaper. A guy was selling propane tanks. Letterman picked up the phone. This guy had a large quantity of them. I don't know, maybe 50 of them. It was probably somebody going out of business or something. And uh, Dave gets the guy on the line, and I don't know, he put him on for uh, 15 minutes, seventh, seventh grade kid, and, uh, uh, and had, had the guy convinced that he was from the Naval Department, and they were interested in buying all of these, and they were going on a miniature submarine project that they were going to equip them uh, as weapons. So you got to the point of he's actually trying to negotiate a price with the guy. <laughs> Dave didn't expect to be a giant star. He went to Ball State University in his native Indiana, and after that worked radio and also as a weatherman on a local TV station. Even then, he had that Dave thing going on. Most of Missouri is under a flash flood watch. The same holds true for Iowa, and uh, flooding all over. In fact, uh, portions of uh, Indiana at one time yesterday were under a flash flood warning. But all of that seems of little importance once you take a look at the cloud cover photograph made earlier of the United States today. And I think you'll see that once again we've fallen to the prey of political dirty dealings. And right now you can see what I'm talking about. The higher-ups have removed the border between Indiana and Ohio, making it one giant state. Personally, I'm against it. <laughs> it was in 1975 that Letterman took his great leap. He headed to Los Angeles. That's where he met Merrill Marco, a brilliant writer, and a group of comics that included Leno, Elaine Boozler, and Robin Williams. Comedian Tom Dreesen, an older veteran on that scene, remembers it well. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. People were getting discovered every night. You know, one appearance on The Tonight Show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. And everybody going on stage knew this was a great moment. And David was approaching it like, all right, kids, you know, let's, you know th- this, this will probably go into the tank, but who gives a damn? Around this time, Letterman and Marco began working together. She'd become his partner, both romantically and creatively. Even though the relationship ended in what Marco described as a fiery cataclysm, she helped define Dave's comedy in those days. Marco only agreed to talk to me if we kept the focus on comedy. Late Night wasn't her first program with Letterman. She worked with him when he had done a live morning show in 1980, which got canceled due to low ratings. But the show won two Emmys and led to Johnny Carson, the king of Late Night, handpicking Letterman to follow him in 1982. What was special about Marco is that she embraced a kind of absurdist humor that wasn't part of normal TV programming. Stupid pet tricks, or really anything with dogs, She loved weird remotes, like when Dave visited a store called Just Bulbs, pestering the lady to explain exactly what else they sold. Naturally, just light bulbs. Or limited perspective, a regular feature in which experts in fields other than film would do movie reviews. So you heard a dentist, for example, critiquing Diane Keaton's teeth, high lip line, and gingiva in the film Reds. I went to art school. And it it looks a little bit like art school comedy to me. You know, it's um, it, there's just a love of uh, of of ideas and angles and approaches and weird abstractions and taking things out of context and stuff like that. And there's there's no there's a love of comedy and a love of of, of making people laugh, but there's no love for the sort of holy medium of TV. You're not trying to be respectful to that, right? Well, TV had worn itself out on a certain level in the beginning. It was because um, Dave and I both grew up on TV, and there was just a sort of 
sanctimonious smarminess that was going on by the time the show came on that everybody who had grown up on TV was pretty damn sick of. I don't love when people get falsely nostalgic and wax poetic about the old days, but it's hard to deny the power of the original late night. Part of it was how completely different the show was from everything else on the air. He and the writers of the show changed the sense of humor in the United States. That's Jimmy Kimmel, host of his own late-night show and a Letterman fanboy long before he could vote. It was a revelation in a lot of ways. I think you can really probably only compare it to music in bands like The Beatles or, or Elvis or something like that, where things actually change. How much of a fan was Kimmel growing up? His first car in 1984 Zuzu had a license plate that read Late Night with the number 8. There's a photo of him as a kid with a Letterman birthday cake, and he remembers watching the show every single night with his best friend. Sometimes we just sit on the phone and watch the show together over the telephone if we weren't sleeping over each other's houses. Watching the way Letterman did comedy changed the way Kimmel thought about comedy. I remember one show he did where he was just waiting at home for the cable guy all day. A couple of years ago, it seemed like a couple of years ago, I signed up to have cable television installed here at my home. And uh, as you know, if you've ever had uh, to deal with cable TV people, they make you stay in your home all day and, and wait for the guy to hook it up. So uh, that's where I am. That's why I'm here. And as soon as the guy comes and, and hooks me up, I'm going to race right into New York and be there in the studio with you. In the meantime, we have a fine show. Paul and the band, of course, are there. Some wonderful guests. But uh, I asked Kimmel about that. What did he connect with there? What it taught us is that television isn't important and that... There's nothing sacred about it, and you don't have to wear a suit. You could wear a, um, a striped rugby shirt in Adidas um, and host a talk show if you felt like doing it. Letterman changed the late-night game in other ways, too. Here's comedian Elaine Boozler, who was a frequent guest on Letterman's Late Night, the show that ran from 1982 to 1993, before he left NBC for CBS. I will forever be grateful to him knowing that women are funny. And I think it was because he came up in the clubs with us, whereas, you know, people like Carson didn't. When his show started, there was no game in town. And suddenly he's presenting woman after woman, after Franklin Ajay, after funny black comic, after Hispanic comic, after me. I mean, it was like he opened, like, hey, America's here, folks, not just, you know, blonde, bland guys who don't offend me, which is what The Tonight Show was. But The Tonight Show, that was the holy grail. It's what Letterman dreamed of, even as he made his mark following Carson on Late Night for all those years. When the legend said he was retiring, Letterman was largely seen as the heir apparent, Johnny's guy. Except there was this pesky guy named Jay Leno, Carson's longtime fill-in host. Jay wasn't about to go down without a fight. More in a minute. In the time of the show, it was, oh, it's the late night wars, and oh, Jay's winning, and oh, nobody likes me, and everybody likes Jay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't take it lightly. The late night wars. With Johnny Carson retiring, Letterman felt it was his time. He was the brilliant revolutionary, 
And now he had a chance to take that approach to the coveted 11.30 slot he'd long dreamed of. Except something unexpected happened. He lost. The gig went to Jay Leno, a safer choice. A guy who high-fived the crowd and appealed to middle America. The fact that I got picked for the Tonight Show, I think, was really hurtful and upsetting to him. Jay knows this entire thing was really hard on Dave. He used this analogy to explain how two friends who supported each other on and off the air could be split up by a network's decision. Two quarterbacks go to the Super Bowl. One's not necessarily better than the other, but one wins and one doesn't. Okay, so do these two guys hang out together right after the game? They weren't going to be hanging out. Jay got The Tonight Show. Dave, in dramatic fashion, signed a massive contract to move to CBS and compete against Leno at 11.30. The late-night wars may have been entertaining, but they didn't make Dave any easier to work for. Steve O'Donnell, his former writer, remembers that even the audience was scrutinized. Well, they're applauding, but they're not laughing. Or they're whooping, but they're not laughing. Or they're laughing, but they're laughing at the wrong time. Or they're, they're, the, the, they're, 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 they're hooting, and I don't want so much hooting. But Steve says it wasn't all wrong. Dave's critiques, if splitting hairs, were usually right. So that he could be difficult and disdainful, but uh, uh, part of it was because he had an idea what, what somewhere, somehow, what good and best and better was. Dave admits he had a temper. He explained it to me on a windy day by the Hudson River. Uh, and I was always like that. And, and I don't know where that came from. I never saw my parents do it, but I, I always had that. And then uh, yanked the phone out of the wall and that kind of thing. And, and uh, if, if the show sucked, then I was just, because the show sucks. When he looks back now, he realizes it was more than a bad mood. It was depression. It was actually a bout with shingles that led to Dave being properly medicated, put on antidepressants. Everything changed. I still get pissed off. Uh, I don't punch walls. I don't pull phones out of uh, the socket. Uh, so we've achieved a balance by which I am a different guy. And so now I feel like um, probably uh, most people feel, I hope most people feel like this. Dave, even the less temperamental Dave, wasn't perfect. In 2009, he admitted to having an affair with one of his employees after her boyfriend threatened to blackmail him. The affair had been consensual, but not the first letterman had had with an underling. And while he admitted it on his show, today that confession, under the veil of a joke, might sound a little flippant. At the time, it kept him in the good graces of the public and his superiors. And uh, the creepy stuff was that I have uh, had sex with women who work for me on this show. Now, my response to that is, yes, I have. <laughs> I have had sex with women who work on this show. He offered a much more heartfelt analysis to Oprah a few years later. Having lived through that sex scandal, I realized, wait a minute. I'm you want to get through, just to say sex scandal, Dave, you want to get through your whole life and not have the word sex scandal attached to your name. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You didn't make it. Did not make it. Mm -hmm. uh, and have no one to blame but myself. Yeah. And now um, uh, I, feel, I feel better about myself. Uh, my relationship with my wife uh, is, is never better. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just because I want to be the person I always thought I was and probably was pretending I was. Mm -hmm. And so far, uh, it's, it's been great. 
Yeah, things have been great. I, I hurt a lot of people. I have nobody to blame but myself. I'm not looking to blame anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to find out why I behave the way I behave. Hard to say if the public was more forgiving then than it would be if this happened now. But as you can hear, he wasn't trying to avoid tough subjects. He seemed to be trying to own them and grow up as best he could. This might actually be one of the most striking achievements of Dave's second chapter at CBS. The man who once had himself lowered into a tank of water while wearing an Alka-Seltzer suit showed us that comedians don't always have to be funny. The best example of this has to be his dramatic return to television after 9-11. My wife and I were in, uh, in Montana when this happened, and we got a call from her father and said, you should turn on the TV. He knew he wanted to return to the show as soon as possible, so he immediately got back to New York. Producer Barbara Gaines remembers that show well. You know, give me some time at the top of the show, Gaines. And I said, okay. Like, I didn't know how long. He, he didn't seem to know how long. And I said, all right. And then he, you know, went for eight minutes. It was so good. Uh, as I understand it, and, and my understanding of this is vague at best, uh, another smaller group of people stole some airplanes and crashed them into buildings. And, and we're told that they were uh, zealots uh, fueled by religious fervor, religious fervor. And if you live to be a thousand years old, will that make any sense to you? Will that make any goddamn sense? Jimmy Kimmel says he was deeply influenced by that side of Letterman. And you can see that during Kimmel's own transformation. From telling jokes to talking passionately about health care reform and his experiences with his newborn son's heart defect. You reach a point in your career where you feel like you've done enough silly stuff and you realize largely thanks to Dave, that it's okay to be serious sometimes. And, and it actually is preposterous to go on television and not acknowledge some major tragedy. Shortly after 9-11, he made another huge change. Letterman's longtime girlfriend, Regina Lasco, had grown up in a big Catholic family and always wanted children. And I said, I can't, I can't, because I felt like I, I can't do what I'm doing and then also because I didn't know what having a kid was. And, and, you know, my wife and I broke up over this, and she said, well, screw you, that's it, goodbye, and she left. Uh, when was that? This was when we were having this, this struggle about kids. But it, it, During that, the late night wars, That's right? right. I said, so like, honey, I'm at war. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the kid could be born without a father. So this was during the 90s? You and Regina, you were together for years and years. Don't and years. confuse me yeah. with a man who knows the dates of his life. <laughs> uh, but you broke up over this argument over this argument. Kid. And, yeah. and now, Eventually, though, Regina convinced Dave that having a kid could work, even if he thought he couldn't do it while devoting so much energy to his career. And, and, and I, I was terrified for nine months. And, and I can remember I was outside one afternoon, and I had been uh, we were grilling something on the thing outside and I, I went into the house and I said to Regina, I said, oh Jesus, what, what if we have a little kid and he's wandering around and I kick him? And, and she said, what? You're standing too close to the grill. What is wrong with you? But I was, I was paralyzed with this paranoia. I, I, I didn't know what that was. And then the minute the kid is born, I realized, holy shit, I, I, I have made an enormous mistake and tried to defend it for 15 years now. Uh, we have been having this argument about having children for 15 years. I was wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. 
After decades on TV, Dave's biggest regret isn't yelling at his staff or losing the late-night wars or even how he handled his affair. It's not having kids sooner. I wish I had a sibling for Harry. I wish I had a sibling. Dave's son Harry is 14. He goes to school in Manhattan. He's into aviation, flying planes on computer software, but not in real life. He'll go fishing with his dad, but like any teenager, he's totally embarrassed by him. Letterman remembers a Saturday morning when he and Harry went to see Battle of the Sexes, the dramatized account of the Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King celebrity tennis match. It's it's a nice movie. They did a nice job, and it's reminiscent. I was working in TV when all of this happened. But what hadn't occurred to me was kind of the supporting theme is this lesbian love story. So you see a lot of good-looking girls in their underpants making out. And and I just wasn't prepared for it. Not that you, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that I'm But you're with Harry. I'm with Harry. We're both in our popcorn. Uh Uh-huh. I see. He thinks back 60 years to a fishing trip he took with his own father. Somewhere along the way, they stopped to use a bathroom. Young Dave spotted a condom machine on the wall. And uh, so I come out and I say, geez, uh, there's a, a machine in there. I, have n- I don't know what, it's not candy, it's not cigarettes. And my dad said, ah. He said, you, one day you and I are going to have to have a talk. And we never did. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always think of that. And uh, uh, So I, I, I pester Harry. I said, Harry, you know, do we... Have we had the talk? Because we should. We should have the talk, especially now. Let's have the talk. Uh, yeah. Dave's definitely not finished. He probably still hasn't had that talk with Harry, and he's not done with the spotlight. A couple of years after leaving Late Night, he wanted to continue the conversation he began with us 35 years ago. When you watch his new Netflix show, it's clear something has changed. It's less about the joke and more about connecting with his super high-level guests. Early in his episode with Barack Obama, the former president turned the tables on Dave. This came after Letterman has asked Obama how he felt when he left the White House. How, how did you spend your time, uh, seriously, how, how, did you, how did you spend your time right after your last show? Did you, did you take a deliberate break with the wife and son? Did you um, just brood in the dark somewhere? <laughs> I mean, what was, what what was your... What, what have was, you heard? What was, I don't know. What was your, what was your strategy? Well, uh, what was your even, even before retirement, there was a certain amount of brooding in the dark. <laughs> but, uh, no, it coincided with uh, Harry's vacation. Uh, we traveled. Yeah. Uh, we went to, to a lot of uh, fascinating, interesting places. We visited uh, Japan. Had not been to Japan before. Yeah. Uh, went to an island off uh, Newfoundland, yeah. Fogo Island. Yeah. Had, had never heard of it before. Saw icebergs. Now, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to ask you stuff. <laughs> and and oh, uh, then you say you respond to really stuff. People are interested. <laughs> the, uh, it's a whole new ball game now, man. Huh? And that's really only half true. There's no set, there's no band, but this is still David Letterman. And as long as he's on TV, we're not going anywhere. end of season one. 
If you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to check out our episodes on Weird Al, Ava DuVernay, Billy Joe Shaver, and Jimmy Kimmel. Edge of Fame is a production of The Washington Post and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. This episode was produced by Nina Feldman and edited by Catherine Brewer, Jessica Alpert, and Iris Adler. Sound designed by John Parati and Paul Vikas. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert, Jessica Stahl, and me. Special thanks to WETA in Washington, D.C. for permission to use sound from the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor Awards ceremony. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Edge of Fame, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Edgers Podcast. If you do the Twitter thing, you can find me at Jeff Edgers. That's Jeff spelled G-E-O-F-F.